0: Welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zaro-Kopinski, and today, Fiona Davis is back on the podcast to discuss her new novel, The Magnolia Palace. Fiona Davis is the New York Times bestselling author of six historical fiction novels set in iconic New York City buildings, including The Dollhouse, The Address, and The Lions of Fifth Avenue, which was a Good Morning America book club pick. Her novels have been chosen as one book, one community reads, and her articles often appear in publications like The Wall Street Journal and O, The Oprah Magazine. She first came to New York as an actress, but fell in love with writing after getting a master's degree at Columbia Journalism School. Her books have been translated into over a dozen languages, and she's based in New York City. In the Magnolia Palace, Fiona Davis returns with a tantalizing novel about the secrets, betrayal, and murder within one of New York City's most impressive Gilded Age mansions, and the book just hit the New York Times bestseller list, which is so exciting. Um, Fiona Davis, welcome back to a bookish home. Um, I've really been looking forward to getting to speak with you again. Oh, this
1: is wonderful. Thank you for having me. I'm
0: so excited. Yes, um, your books are such a treat. I look forward to them and then I devour them way too fast. I finished this one in a day and just haven't stopped thinking about these characters. So um, can you tell readers a little bit about um, the Magnolia Palace and um, the wonderful setting?
1: Sure, sure. So it is set at the Frick Collection excuse me, and that is a a museum here in New York on Fifth Avenue that was the home to Henry Clay Frick, who was a big industrialist and a major, major art collector, and his family. And I liked the idea of setting it there because, you know, I like two timelines, and I figured you could talk about it when it was a residence, which would be really interesting, and then later once it became a museum. And so the book is set in two timelines. In 1919, It's from the point of view of a celebrated artist's model and muse named Lillian. And she falls on really hard times, and she takes a job as the private secretary to Helen Frick, who was the adult daughter of Henry Frick and was kind of temperamental, shall we say. (laughs) (laughs) And so she gets very caught up in the family drama, including romantic trysts and a stolen diamond, a pink diamond known as the Magnolia Diamond. And then we also have 1966, which is the the kind of parallel timeline. And that's from the point of view of a fashion model named Veronica, who's doing a photo shoot for Vogue at what's now the Frick Museum. And she gets, it goes terribly wrong. And she gets stuck behind and locked inside during a three-day blizzard, along with an intern named Joshua. And she stumbles upon a series of hidden messages that are tucked within the artwork in the Frick Museum. And that leads her and Joshua on this kind of this scavenger hunt that she hopes might solve all of her financial problems, as well as possibly reveal the truth behind a decades old murder in the Frick family. So there, there's a lot of moving parts, I got to say.
0: <laughs> yes. I love the way your books blend that mystery and and the historical. And, you know, it's fun to see with each book how you do settle on a different uh, New York landmark. And I'm curious kind of how this one sort of started yeah, worming yeah. its way into your imagination <laughs> and just kind of um, how that came to be that you sort of picked this as, as your next subject.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I had known of it and i had been to it. It's not a big museum like the Met or the Guggenheim here in New York. Um, compared to those, it's, it's quite small. But if you ask any New Yorker what their favorite museum is, it tends to be the Frick because it's just, it's so special. It's got all the kind of the same furnishings and, you know, the artwork on the walls. So it really feels like it's frozen in time as if the family just went off to a dinner party and they'll be back at any moment. And I think that's why it's so special because you really feel like you're in someone's home. And I was a little worried about picking it because it's not as well known as the other locations that I've chosen, like Grand Central or the Dakota. But the, the response has just been amazing. And I just love the idea that so many people who might not know about the Frick Collection are now learning about it, uh, which is just wonderful to be able to elevate a, a museum like that to the, the stature that it deserves.
0: Yes, I want to go now. I've never been to the Frick, and um, I wonder: Have you been speaking to them at the museum? I mean, I know the book just came out, but I would imagine they might be preparing for a, a big uptick of <laughs> people making their making their pilgrimages to to go now.
1: Well, they have been wonderful. They've been really helpful from the very beginning, giving me a behind the scenes tour, right? You know, before I even started writing, and supplying me with wonderful archival material that I could. You know, use for details in the book, but I do have to say that the Frick at at the moment is under renovation until 2023. But they've moved much of the artwork to what they're calling the Frick Madison, which is just a few blocks away. And so you can go and see all this beautiful artwork in this really interesting setting. And you can also go by the Frick Mansion and take a look at it, which is, you know, it's really quite beautiful. But yeah, I, I joke around that whenever I pick a building, I for a book, I tend to close it. Like (laughs) the last one was the Lions of Fifth Avenue, which was the New York Public Library. And of course that came out during COVID when, you know, everything shut down. So I I seem to be on a roll here.
0: (laughs) We'll have to see what's next. Um, (laughs) Well, one of the things I love about your books is you weave together your um, timelines and your characters um, so beautifully. And um, I just, I'm amazed at kind of how you're able to um, just really keep up that momentum in the story and also have us caring about both of these characters so much. Could you speak a little bit to how you plan your books and um, how you sort of develop those characters and and their separate storylines, but, you know, their through lines
1: as well? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. To me, the book always starts, it starts with the place where I do a lot of research around that. But I'm when I'm doing that, I'm looking for characters and I'm looking for people in history who might be an inspiration for a character in the book. And there were a, a couple of them, including Helen Frick and Audrey Munson, who's the inspiration for Lillian here. And so I find these kind of characters or create a fictional one like the fashion model Veronica in the 60s portion. And from there, I... I really dive into who they are, what are their strengths? What are their vulnerabilities? What do they want? What's the worst thing that can happen to them? And that's where the plot starts to de- develop. Because if I know their goal and I know what's the worst thing that can happen to them, I can lead them through this kind of this obstacle course that takes the reader on hopefully a ride that you feel like there's a lot of tension with plot twists, unexpected things happening, and yet you're, you're rooting for them because you understand who they are as people and and really that's what i that's where that comes from i think is just starting with character versus starting with oh i'll have this fancy plot it all has to come organically from the character and i know actually if i'm working on a scene and i'm kind of stuck it means i have to go back and reread my character studies that i create for each of them and and kind of figure out what where i'm going wrong
0: oh that's interesting and you know for your books you also have um, real people as well. So um, how does that come into play in sort of having your um, imaginary characters uh, <laughs> bump up against the real people in history? Like I'm thinking of Helen Frick, for instance. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. And that that was the hardest part of this book, is that you have characters that are completely fictional, like Veronica. You have characters that are inspired by real people, like Lillian. And then you have Helen Frick, who was a real person and who I'm representing as herself and as well as her family members. And I was kind of nervous about doing that because I haven't done a lot of, you know, using real people before. But luckily, there's been a couple of wonderful biographies written about her. And that helped a lot because I felt like I could really get in her head and understand her motivations and what she did and hopefully create a really three-dimensional portrait of her so that... You know she she was a temperamental, tough woman, and I didn't want to shy away from that, but at the same time, I think that came from certain things that happened in her childhood and so I think by the uh, by the reader understanding all that, she comes across as fully formed and And what I love is uh, you know I've had so many readers reach out and say that Helen is their favorite character, which i, I I'm really, really happy about and then others like Lillian. Are inspired by Audrey Munson who was this celebrated artist model and much of her early life tracks with how I have Lillian's life track and then I take Lillian on a different course because Audrey Munson's um, life unfortunately took a pretty tragic turn and so that was that was fun as well because you can kind of pick cherry pick things from this person's life and what I try to do is in the author's note explain really really clearly what's made up what's Based on fact, and then let the reader go off and do a deep dive into whatever aspect of the book they want.
0: Yeah, it's fun to see. You know, I look forward to those at the end, kind of figuring out, oh, this was a real person. This one was made up. I definitely loved Helen Frick's character. And you do such a great job kind of transporting us to these time periods. And I know just from talking to different, you know, historical fiction authors that it can be really difficult to figure out kind of what to include from your research, Mm -hmm. what isn't necessary, what you can leave behind, kind of what's your approach when it comes to figuring out kind of the most important historical details that are going to kind of transport
1: a reader without getting too bogged down Mm -hmm. in the research? Right, which is real. It's a real danger because it's so much fun to research. You're talking to experts and you're reading books and, um, you know, you can really take a long time doing that. But for me, because I write books on, on a deadline, you know, I, there's always this panic behind the research of what if I can't find enough? What if it doesn't work? What if? And so I'm, I'm frantically gathering in as much information as I can. And I'm always looking for what surprises me, because it's that kind of detail that will work in the book. So learning about Helen Frick, um, you know, and, and what she did and her, her accomplishments in her life and realizing that no one really knew about her. And the same with Audrey Munson, realizing there was this really famous artist muse in the early 1900s, whose statue is all over Manhattan, but no one knows her name. And I think, oh, that, you know, that's what I'm going to jump into. And then it's a matter of finding those really fun details. And for that, the Frick has wonderful digital archives that they were able to share with me. So I could see, you know, the, the payroll of the staff. There were, it was a family of three living in that mansion, served by a staff of 27. Oh my and gosh. So I know. And so I could see that all their names, what they did, how much they got paid, and those details really help. And, and then, you know, or they would, I would get a dinner menu from a dinner party for 30 from 1915, and I could see who was invited and what the courses were. And so by, by picking those really small details, I think that's what helps bring the book to life without weighing it down. In, okay, here's the historical period and I'm going to teach you something, which is what I don't want to do. That's
0: fascinating. I would love to hear, is there a way that, I know you're kind of writing on deadline. Is there a way that the book that we see now, the finished version, um, is very different from your initial kind of rough first draft?
1: Um, You know, I do tend to create an outline before I start writing that first draft. So the basic structure really stayed the same, which I was surprised at because usually that does get changed a little. But with this book, the initial kind of roller coaster that the both timelines are going on remained pretty similar to the way I planned it from the beginning. The things that did change was that I realized I needed uh, to add a character in after I'd done a couple drafts. And it was one of those things where I'm thinking, I know I need, I know I should do it. Oh, it doesn't need it. But it just kept on sticking with me. And I thought, oh, I've got, I've got to add that character in because she'll she'll serve a, a really good service, even though it's a, such a pain to weave someone new in after you've already <laughs> written it. It's just awful. Um, and so some things did change. But in general, I would say it stuck pretty closely to... As it was in my outline and my first draft, but I, I do write a really skeletal first draft. I just kind of fly through it as fast as I can and then go back and add in kind of the layers of describing people's clothes or you know really getting into the mindset of what that character is thinking and and pulling that out a little more but the 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 bones were there, I would say well, oh, that's interesting, thinking of it
0: like that, kind of just adding the layers um, well, you know. Is there something in your um, in your process or in your research? I feel like I've been talking to a lot of authors lately who were sort of writing these new books that have come out. Um, they were writing them during the pandemic, and it seems like that changed some people's processes or made them work in different ways? Is there um, anything with this book that was kind of different because of um, writing it during the
1: pandemic? Yeah, that's such a good question. It was interesting because I started it in January of 2020. That's when I got that behind the scenes tour. And usually I go back and visit a location multiple times. But of course, everything shut down in March of 2020. But luckily for me, the Frick website, which is Frick.org, has a floor plan on it where you can click in any room and get a 360 degree view. And oh, wow. that saved the day because <laughs> I could, you know, go into the art gallery and say, All right, what's on the wall over there? And how, how is how is that furniture laid out? And, and that really helped with with the research. But on top of that, you know, I do tend to work in my home office because there's so many books and things that I need to access and that I don't go to coffee shops or that kind of thing. So that didn't change much. But what I really missed was just being out and about in New York and going to a play and hearing dialogue and kind of figuring out what I was doing wrong by being inspired by you know a playwright's words or seeing someone from a bus and thinking, oh yeah, that's what that character looks like. So that's how I'll describe them. And that kind of serendipity is you're out on the subway and you're you know, thinking about a plot point, and suddenly the the fix comes to you and and that that was tough, like just being you know stuck in one place it is really, really hard and it's so it's wonderful now the city's starting to open up and there's theater and there's a lot going on so i'm I'm very, very happy about that
0: yeah, it's interesting you say that I've been reading I have to look up the title, but I've been reading a book about sort of um, writing and and revising your novel, and they've been talking a little bit about how certain either works of art or books or things that you're sort of consuming at the time of your (laughs) um, writing and revision can often wind up sort of being in conversation with your book. So I guess I wonder, um, does anything stick out while you were at home that was kind of an inspiration, either things you were reading or watching or anything that sort of influenced the book?
1: Oh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I wonder, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I, you know, one of the things is that the 1960s timeline is, is very limited. I, I gave myself a challenge of keeping it to a limited number of people, a limited timeline and a limited setting. So it's takes place only over three days, mainly at the Frick between two characters, between Veronica and Joshua. And I'm, you know, now that you ask me that, and I hadn't thought of this before, but I wonder if that came from quarantine. And mm. and the idea that, you know, you are restrained, but I didn't consciously think that until just now. And I bet you that's right. I bet you that came from the idea of, you know, being stuck in one place. That's so, so thank you. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: it's interesting. Um, well, you know, I'm curious. I know we're sort of in. You're in the um, kind of celebratory stage. The book just hit the the bestseller list, and um, I'm sure you're doing lots of events. Um, but have you kind of started thinking about what the next landmark
1: will be, or <laughs> kind of just playing around with that at all? Yeah, I. Um, I you know, I, I as the books um, get finished, it takes about six months for them to finally get published. There's a real pipeline where the publishing company is doing the cover and all the press and the marketing. And so I usually start working on the next book at that time. So I'm, I'm well into the weeds of the next book. And that is a set at Radio City Music Hall. Ooh, oh, yeah. that's fun. From the point of view of a Rockette in the 1950s. So that's been very fun to work on. And I've been talking to lots of Rockettes who are in their 80s now, but just speak so fondly of their time. Uh, dancing with the troupe and and we'll see where it goes it's really fun oh
0: that's so fun so when you're really in the thick of a a new book or just really in your kind of drafting process what is your kind of writing schedule like i know you're sort of fitting in you know like this interview promotion as well kind of what's what's that schedule or, or routine like
1: yeah i do tend to try and write in the morning um because that's just when i'm more awake i think and so if I'm working on the first draft, that's what I'll do in the morning. I'm in editing mode now for the, I've done a, a quick rough draft of it. And so that I can pretty much do any time. And I do about 10 different revisions um, and go throughs of, of the manuscript. So that takes some time and, you know, I'll, I'll take time off to, if there's things I have to, you know, fly to a book events and that kind of thing but I I just try and keep a a pretty tight schedule so that I know I'll hit the deadline. And I I really prefer editing to writing a first draft. I think it's much more fun. And so it's, it's, yes, (laughs) yeah. Right. I mean, there's just something it's like you have something to play with as opposed to Mm -hmm. a blank page. Um, So yeah, so I'm, I'm working on that now and that's that's, that's fun. When you say
0: that you typically do, sort of 10 rounds of revision. Do you have like a particular focus for each one or that's just sort of about the amount of kind of pass throughs it usually takes you?
1: You know, the first couple are just getting the first draft into shape so I can show it to someone and get feedback. And then it's and then it's reworking it and my agent, you know, takes a look at it and and her her team are wonderful and always have some really good points. And so it's taking, I find that when you write a book, you you can't see it from the outside. You're too lost in the characters. You don't know what's missing. And you really need, you know, working with a great editor is the way to, to figure out what's wrong or what's what's not quite working and attack it that way. So each new edit is kind of a new attack to bring it up to speed so that someone reading it understands the whole story and there's nothing missing or no threads that are dropped and the characters feel feel solid that's interesting
0: kind of a, i like that thinking of it as a different attack on sort of <laughs> bringing it all together well you know that kind of makes me wonder too sort of you mentioned your your editor your agent are there other sort of trusted readers of yours or other authors that you really kind of um, rely on for um, either you know, another set of eyes or inspiration or just kind of
1: supporting one another? Oh, there there are some wonderful authors who are are great supports. When I was first writing, I would share it with other authors who I adore and who I trust. Um, But these days that the process is moving so quickly that I don't quite have time to do that. But I I have to say just the support of other authors makes such a difference in being an author because, you know, you're alone most of the time writing. And there's a wonderful group of authors based here in New York City that we're all, you know, Zooming or checking in or texting. And so, you, you know, if someone's having trouble with something, they can toss that out there and we all troubleshoot. And it's a wonderful way to support each other and, and kind of pay it forward as you go along.
0: Yeah, that's lovely. And I guess that is kind of one upside of what we've had to figure out during the pandemic. I mean, for something like that, to be able to, jump on a Zoom call with a group of authors or kind of be in touch no matter where people are. Um, And it's different than just maybe chatting on the phone or something. So that is nice to kind of have that option.
1: Yeah, Um, yeah. It's like the second best to all of us meeting for lunch, which hopefully we'll be doing again soon. Yes, that would be nice. Well,
0: speaking of other authors, I do always love to hear um, what guests have been reading lately.
1: Um, Are there books
0: that you've really been enjoying that you'd want to recommend to listeners?
1: Yeah, sure. So a couple that are just out: her hidden genius by Marie Benedict, who of course is she. She also she's just a wonderful author at bringing women who might have been forgotten from history to life, and I really admire her her work. And that just came out. And there's a wonderful book called The Christie Affair by Nina de Gramont, which I was able to get an early read of, and that just came out as well. I think it's a Reese's book pick, which is huge. Oh, Um, nice! And that's really fun. That's um. Agatha Christie went missing for 11 days, I think. And it's kind of reimagining what happened at that time. And and then another book that I just finished is The Ballerinas by Rachel Kapelke Dale. And that's set in the Paris Ballet from three friends point of view. It's about friendship and betrayal and it's a thriller. It's really fun and you feel like you've traveled to Paris by the time you have finished it. Oh, that sounds lovely. I I would like to travel to Paris in my mind and also
0: in real life. Yes. Um, Well, you know, one of the things I was thinking about before we talked, just kind of looking back at your past books and thinking about the Magnolia Palace – Has there been any talk of turning these into movies? I was thinking in particular of, you know, I know it's been a little while since it's been out now. So like Lions of Fifth Avenue, I feel Mm. like would be such fun to get to see on the screen. Is that anything we can maybe (laughs) look forward to? Or if anyone at Netflix is listening. (laughs) There we go.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it's wonderful. I agree. I think there's so much interest in historical fiction on the screen. You have The Queen's Gambit, you have The Crown. Um, I think there's a real appetite for it, so fingers crossed. We'll see what happens. But it's been, uh, you know, they're they're out there, so we'll see what happens.
0: Yeah, I know. I'm enjoying. I just started watching The Gilded Age, yes. and that um, is a lot of fun. So I feel yeah. like, I know, and, and Old New York, there there is a lot of interest there, right. Um, right. Well, you know, just to, end, I know myself and lots of other kind of aspiring writers um, would maybe like to hear, is there any kind of writing advice that you still think about a lot or use that you've kind of gotten along the way that you'd want to
1: share? Oh, that's such a, a great, uh, great question. You know what it is? It's that with every book, it doesn't, it gets a little easier. You know, this is book number six. But every time I, I write a book, right around 75% of the way through, I just feel like, oh, this is awful. It's impossible. I should just throw it out. And I've learned to just let that go and understand that it's a phase. And I think if you're a new writer, you hit that point and you think, oh, it's, you know, not worth it to go on. And it definitely is. It's worth it to push through that, even though you're you're feeling kind of icky about the whole thing. It's just part of the process. And it and once you've pushed through that. You come out the other side and you've got kind of a, a fresh take on things. And so just don't let that get you down. Know that it's, yeah. it's really common, it's expected. And it's just it means you're doing what you're doing. It means you're doing a good job, actually.
0: I love that. It sort of sounds like you're on like your sixth kid or something. Like, I you know, know. Like, <laughs> now that I've gone through this six times, this is sort of what I, and then it's like, oh yeah, like I would, you know, expect that along the way. And like, <laughs> like, yeah. like that. that is great advice.
1: <laughs> it's true. Every time I'm like, oh, i you know, I'll talk to my boyfriend and say, oh, it's just going so badly. And then I'll remember, oh yeah, this is when it's supposed to be going so badly. Okay. Yeah. Well, I
0: can get through that. And right. yeah. I like that a lot. And then and then you get to get to your part where you're editing and playing around with the words and, and yes. that's great. Well, I really hope that librarians order the Magnolia Palace for their libraries, um, that people continue to pick it up so it can stay on the bestseller list, which is just very exciting. And yeah, I'm really going to look forward to um, the future books um, that come out that you're working on now. So just thank you for coming on and and talking historical fiction with me. It's really been a treat.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's my absolute pleasure. And And I'll come back anytime you like. (laughs) That sounds wonderful.
0: For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. And there you'll also find a link to our new online bookshop. Um, A Bookish Home has teamed up with the new organization, bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores. And if you'd like, you can browse books by authors who have been guests on A Bookish Home, I'm also sharing there all of the books mentioned on the podcast, books I've been reading lately, and other recommendations. It's a really wonderful site to browse and look through books. And if you make a purchase, it supports A Bookish Home and independent bookstores, so it's a win-win. So if you want to check that out directly, it's bookshop.org shop A Bookish Home. And you'll also find that at abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.